1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Digital Humanities, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Katie McDonough, one of the hosts of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ruth Honor, Sebastian Honor, Nicole Coleman, and Scott Weingart. Ruth, Sebastian, Nicole, and Scott, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Oh,
1: thanks. <laughs> thanks.
2: So um, I think starting with Ruth, I wonder if you could uh, begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for having us.
3: Um, So my title is a Professor of Literary History and Digital Humanities at Queen Mary, um, University of London. Um, And my background is actually in English literature uh, with a focus on Tudor culture and history. And my first book was on something that seems quite unrelated to this, which is Tudor prison literature but I've actually been increasingly collaborating with people who you might call data scientists, starting firstly with Sebastian. Um, but now I work on a massive project with 23 people um, that include data scientists, curators, and library professionals and historians. So that's a little bit about my uh, journey.
2: Great, thanks. And turning over to Sebastian.
1: Hi, oh, yeah. So my background is in, um, in physics originally, but now I work more on the interface between physics and biology, um, but as part of my research, I've, I've for a long time been interested in complex networks, which is a field that emerged um, in its modern incarnation out of, out of statistical physics, and that is concerned with the analysis of networks of all kinds um, using, using mathematical tools. And it is a very interdisciplinary field, and that's what um, brought me to collaborate with Mm -hmm. with Ruth on historical networks. And the um, yeah, so so increasingly over the last, I would say eight years or so, I've been uh, more and more involved in digital humanities as well as a result of that research. Um, Yeah,
0: great, thank you. And Nicole, Uh, thanks, Katie for having us today. Um, So, currently my title is Digital Research Architect in the Stanford Libraries, but um, I've been working, I would say, in digital humanities primarily, um, certainly for most of my career at Stanford, um, and really came to that through an interest in the arts design and intersection with um, with the humanities and then of course how we can bring technology into that. Um, so I am, <laughs> unlike the other members of this group, uh, very much sort of on the outside of, of the academy in, in many ways, um, though I work within it. I suppose if we were doing a network graph, all of us, uh, we'd have to be careful um, about how we define those lines of connection to be able to include me in it. I'm glad to be here.
2: Great. Thanks, Nicole. And Scott.
4: Uh, Thank you, Katie. Um, Yes, so I am Scott Wengart. I direct the Noveri Family Center for Digital Scholarship at the University of Notre Dame, which is a position I have held uh, for the last few months. I'm quite new here. Um, uh, My background is in history of science. uh, And uh, like I think all of my colleagues here, I have worked on early modern Uh, correspondence and collaboration networks. Uh, I also spent some time in an information science lab looking at uh, contemporary scientific networks.
2: Excellent, thank you. And I think now we're gonna turn to the book itself, which is The Network Turn, Changing Perspectives in the Humanities. It was published uh, last year at the very end of the year Uh, by uh, Cambridge in the New Elements um, series, and this is in the Elements in Publishing and Book Culture uh, part of that series. So we're just going to walk through the different um, uh, parts of the book, starting with the introduction. And uh, so, um, Nicole, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about uh, the introduction of um, the network turn.
0: Yes, I'd be glad to. So in the introduction, we really lay out um, not just the intentions of the the book itself, but something about the intentions of this collaboration uh, and you know the way that we ourselves are coming at this uh, question about the network turn from different perspectives um, but we really wanted to invite people into the conversation um, with this text. this text is it's very very brief <laughs> um, and um, I'm really, Quite proud of the of the brevity of it, um, and the amount that we've been able to fit into such a small text, But uh, it's meant to be an opening, the opening of a conversation. Uh, and we begin this with uh, you know by sort of juxtaposing um, uh, Mark Lombardi and his visualization of networks and um, uh, Barbashi and and uh, this this sort of uh, advance this notion of scale-free networks happening, you know, almost about the same time. And while we don't have any evidence um, that there was any kind of conversation between them, what we try to do across the book is to, is to bring these sort of the, you know, two cultures into conversation um, and, you know, hopefully let the humanities kind of be, you know, a a space um, to be able to bring the arts and the sciences um, together into that conversation.
2: Thanks. And I guess a, a natural uh, f- follow-up to that, and also to, to sort of explain how you guys um, ended up working on this book together, is, is um, yeah, how did this project come together? And in, in the introduction, you mentioned that the, the interface between, as you, as you write, computational method, humanistic inquiry, and design practice are really um, central to taking work in network analysis uh, further in the future. Um, so what did that mean for for each of you? Shall I jump in there? Sure Uh,
3: well I was going to say that um, my work in this area very much started in in the home because um, because I'm married to Sebastian and um, he was working in network science and I was reading more and more about what he was doing and I was like hey I've I've got networks I've got all these letters Uh, could we do something with this and so um, started out as that conversation over a kitchen table, and um, eventually we tried some work together, and then we did a project together, and um, then we ended up in Stanford on a on a fellowship, and then we met Nicole, and we started talking a lot over cocktails, <laughs> <laughs> and um, we had just had such rich conversations with her that um, we, we we were saying one like, night we sh- we should write a text about this, um, and not you know not not just about the kind of outcome of the research but a kind of framework for these kind of discussions and then I think I'll hand over to Nicole here but uh, then we can talk about how how uh, um, Scott came into the
0: picture as well. Yeah and let me give a a little bit more of that sort of background too to what sort of set the stage for for Ruth's uh, and 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 Sebastian's visit to Stanford. You know we um I was very fortunate to be a part of um Mapping Republic of Letters project. Um, and it was really due to the generosity there you know, at, um, at Stanford. Of scholars like Paula Finland and Dan Edelstein, Richard White, Zephyr Frank, uh, Giovanna Cesarani, really starting uh, conversations uh, about digital humanities. And while that began with spatial uh, history, really with Mapping Republic of Letters, that's where we really moved into this notion of of networks, and it wasn't long after that that we went from networks um, to uh, this notion of what what became Humanities Plus Design Research Lab, um, where we were thinking about this using networks as a way of externalizing thought as part of the net necessity for um, communicating across disciplines, um, and. At the same time, there were a number of other projects going on, looking at networks, particularly in the early modern period. Uh, we began collaborating um, with um, Charles Heuvel, uh and um, and also you know Howard Hudson and his team at Oxford, and of course um, with uh, Scott Weingart and um, Katie Borner in um, Indiana. Scott, do you want to sure. pick up now?
4: Yeah, so, I, you know, uh, Nicole, earlier you said that uh, you're perhaps um, a little bit aside um, of the uh, 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 career paths of your colleagues here. Uh, but, you know, what I would say that you're probably at the very center of our collaboration <laughs> network. Um, so I started this work on uh, early modern correspondence networks, uh, working as a research assistant as an undergraduate. Uh, for Bob Hatch at the University of Florida and was just making these vast Excel spreadsheets of uh, uh, correspondence in the early modern world. I did not know anything about network analysis. I did not know that it was a thing that uh, happened. I happened to be working on a project that was doing network analysis. I just didn't realize it at the time. Uh, And then uh, in, I want to say it was 2009 or 2010, uh, I found Kati Borner Uh, And then shortly thereafter, Nicole Coleman uh, and started collaborating with her and others on these uh, larger scale network analysis of uh, early modern Europe projects. Uh, And then through that, uh, of course, eventually met Ruth and Seb, uh, which is, I think, how we all found ourselves in this situation. Uh, And Seb, I'll I'll let you finish it off.
1: Well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, Ruth already... Uh, mentioned sort of how, how I got into this really it was our, our, our collaboration actually I think it was as early as 2008 that because I, I was in uh, Barbasi's lab for six months and already then I think uh, we, we had already started becoming interested in 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 the idea of networks in in her prison prison book but um yeah so I, th- I think where we all first met uh, all four of us was actually uh um, uh, the conference that was organized at Stanford towards the end of our stay. Um, in, um, and I think that's maybe where we first all started talking about, about this book collectively. But um, as as has been apparent from, from the what people have said, um, I think this network has been sort of, was formed over several years um, and gradually. So um, I think it's another interesting... Um, you know, we, we talk a bit in the book about networks over time, and I think I think inherently all social networks are are temporal, and you can see them sort of growing, um, uh, growing in our in our data. And it's nice to think about it, sort of how our network grew over time as well. So, um, but I would say yes, I think um, it all. Uh, there's this book really started um, at the near the end of our Stanford stay, um, and I think the the Stanford fellowship and the, was actually a quite instrumental. Um, and bringing us all together uh, in that respect.
2: Um, thank you so much. It's it's a, it's such a it's such a great story to hear how people come together to do research, not only so that um, it you know other people can learn uh, about those models, uh, but also to think about sort of how how that yeah uh, as how that changes over time. Um, great. So I think now we're going to dive into the first couple of chapters, and Scott is going to start us off
4: there? Sure. So, excuse me, Uh, the first uh, section of the book, part one, is uh, what we we call it on frameworks, uh, which contains two chapters on networks as a sort of framework of thinking. Uh, Chapter one, we titled Networks Are Always Metaphorical, and it really begins by anchoring networks as a linguistic and a methodological framework that furnishes scholarly thinking. Uh, We trace the concept from this grid-like lattice in the 16th century through sociometry of uh, Helen Hall Jennings and Jacob Moreno and folks like that, and then to its popularity today. We argue that those who employ networks as either methodological tools or conceptual metaphors ought to know about the uh, other sometimes opposing usage uh, because of how squarely each relies on the other. Uh, We also point out that because network science so often crosses disciplinary boundaries, uh, often foundational concepts get neglected uh, as somebody else's problem. Uh, So we're really hoping to uh, start addressing them here. Uh, And we don't really dive into it as... uh, As we said earlier, this is a a slim volume and intended more as a provocation. But we're pointing out that um, often these concepts do get neglected. Uh, Chapter two on historical threads answers the question of why arts and humanities scholars ought to attend to networks. Uh, And we say that it's not really a matter of whether or not it's important, but that it's honestly unavoidable in the world that we live in. Uh, Networks mediate our lives and we are as stuck inside them as everyone else is, so we better be paying attention to them. In this chapter, we kind of go through a whirlwind tour of mostly European and Anglophone history to show how networks uh, as a metaphor, as a visual mode of thinking, and as a disciplinary lens shape how we think and vice versa. Uh, Specifically, we look at the visual affordances of networks, Uh, are they bounded or unbounded, centered or hierarchical, and so on, and then show how these rhetorical notes turn out to be intrinsically linked to the more philosophical perspectives that surround them. Uh, Then we conclude uh, this chapter and the section by emphasizing the inherent sociopolitical nature of networks, which uh, then lays the groundwork for subsequent chapters.
2: Thanks. That's a really excellent summary, and there's so much rich material in here that um, is um, you know, can lead to rich discussion. I just have a couple of questions to to dig in a little bit. I'm really interested in um, these statements about you know on um, in uh, the first chapter. You talk about networks as being inherently domain crossing, and what gets lost. In a sense, uh, between in the fissures between between disciplines, who might be working with data versus the people who are who are generating uh, data, and I wonder if you could just say a little bit more, uh, maybe provide an example of you know what happens when you start to pay attention to that.
4: Sure. So um, one example is the um, the fact that. we often don't think about uh, the proxies uh, that we are using to create uh, networks. That is, what is a node? What is, what is an edge? And how does it relate to uh, the network theory in which uh, we are currently acting? Um, so, uh, and one of the reasons for this, uh, partially it's because everything is cross-disciplinary and partially uh, it's uh you know, an, an issue with every discipline, which is just we've inherited a series of methodologies and frameworks, um, and uh, these frameworks were really carefully, theoretically constructed fifty years ago, seventy years ago, um, and uh, it's it's sort of hard to constantly think about that at the same time that we're thinking about all of the work that we're doing now, um, and so uh, what can happen, unfortunately, sometimes is that we're defining certain things as nodes or edges. We've been talking about correspondence networks, so we'll say people and letters between them as a network. And then we put it into our uh, network analysis toolkits and run the various algorithms that, that we run on them, being you know, page rank or centrality or whatever else, without thinking too critically about the... Uh, theoretical underpinnings of what centrality means, what page rank does. Um, And uh, that can wind up uh, getting us in trouble when we are using data that uh, operates under certain assumptions that the algorithms don't uh, abide by. Um, So for example, we're, uh, I don't want to get too technical here. Um, So let me think of a good example. If we're, uh, talking about uh centrality uh, if we're talking about something like betweenness centrality on a network which is how many uh uh somebody sits uh, somebody is very uh betweenness central if they sit between many other nodes on a network uh, and if we're dealing with a very incomplete network uh that betweenness centrality can can uh sort of bias the people that we remember the people that that uh, history has uh, recorded uh, in ways that can occlude other voices. For example,
2: yeah, I think I think all of this is just really rich, uh, um, fruit, you know, fodder for um, continuing to think about, especially as uh, more people undertake network analysis. And and I love that you open this chapter with a question um, this, this, the second chapter historical threads, uh, which says, but why would scholars from the arts and humanities bother themselves with the task of theorizing and operating within, um, the network turn that that you guys are describing in the book. Um, and I, and I I think that the approach to providing a history of that engagement with thinking about, um, thinking about how we organize knowledge, Uh, the relationship between the knowledge, um, uh, as you say, what we see and what we know um, across time is a really powerful demonstration of how humanities scholars have um, been engaged uh, with these theories uh, for centuries. Um, And uh, in the quote, uh, there's a quote that you use um, from Lorraine Daston's work, uh, where you talk about Uh, What the the quote is, um, perception furnishes the universe. It doesn't create the universe, but it does shape and sort outlining sharp edges and arranging parts into holes. And because you do talk about um, sort of the relationship of part to whole several times across the book, uh, I wondered if if anyone wanted to say something um, even, even briefly about this issue of um, you know, what these first two chapters really grapple with, of the relationship between, um, you know, sort of something real in the world and the abstraction of, of the network and, and how that is a useful uh, distinction um, in, in research is productive. Seb, you always say really
3: nice things about abstraction.
1: Um, yes, I was just going to say, uh, it's really what um, actually chapter five is about to, to quite a large degree, which is um, that ab- abstraction is often um, sort of, uh, well, they sort of Importance of abstraction falls a bit by the wayside, and actually, in both the humanities and the sciences separately, in, in some sense, because I think the humanities don't always uh, don't always realise, um, or, or at least don't uh, aren't that used to having to abstract, because the uh, the humanities tend to study the detail and, and to, to um, sort of relish in in exploring the detail and describing it and looking at a case study. And the sciences, on the other hand, are too used to abstraction in that they, you know, a scientist is excited if if they get a data set to play with, and they don't really think or or don't even have the information to think about how the 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 real world was abstracted in the first place um, to arrive at that data set, unless they've of course uh, conducted an experiment themselves. But but more often than not, in data science, you, you sort of Get a data set from somewhere and start playing with it, and you don't you don't know really how well that relates to the real world. So, I think it was really important for us, I think, to think about this in the book. Is is uh, you know, if you if you're a humanities scholar who wants to do quantitative research, you really have to take your historical research problem or your literary research problem and and throw away information, which is probably a very painful process, but but it's also a very important part um, of of being able to use quantitative methods because. Um and, you know the data in all its original complexity is really not um uh is is not ready for quantitative analysis. you have to make choices, such as for instance, you have to choose what you regard as your nodes and your edges, what you know, what how do you define an individual in the network? And that might be might not even be as straightforward as being a single person. It might be a a single identity which might be um split between people, for instance, um uh, or, or there might be a person who has multiple identities as well so um, and then of course you also get into the problems of, of disambiguation and, and data cleaning but um, on another note, um, as maybe more more um, a more more straightforward example of abstraction is is how to treat a connection between two people you can you can have an unweighted undirected network uh, just of a binary network of social contact. Do these did these people know each other? Were they in contact with each other or not? And that's the simplest form of data, and it allows you um, to analyze. Uh, uh, or for this kind of data, there are the most um, the greatest number of tools available. Um, but if you start adding complexities such as a direction to a ne- network edge, uh, if you take into account you know, which way was correspondence flowing, um, you have a, a a richer data set but you also have fewer tools at your disposal because the complexity of the analysis increases and uh, you could take into account how many letters passed between two people that would add another level of complexity and and the most uh, complex um, correspondence network is is the full temporal data set where you take into account the timing of every edge um, and, and that's incredibly rich but it uh, also is very hard to, to actually analyze quantitatively because you have to uh, you know, redefine your network metrics in a way that makes sense um, uh, in a sort of constantly evolving network. Um, but at the same time, it also allows you to ask a richer questions. So, I think we, um, uh, so 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 this process of abstraction happens on a continuum, and um, it's actually important to choose where you locate yourself in that continuum when you answer a particular research question, and it may, may, might make sense to. Choose more abstraction or less abstraction, depending on on um, on what, what questions you want to answer.
2: Thank you, and I think Scott has uh, some additional thoughts there,
4: and Ruth as well. Uh, so yes, I uh, think that in addition to what Seb is saying, one of the real advantages of network specifically uh, is. They operate at many different scales from the micro to the meso to the macro. And so, if, as I was saying, in the sciences uh, we often focus on the tendency to generalize or to abstract, uh, and in the humanities we focus on the tendency to uh, specify, to find the particularities, uh, both of those are encompassable within a network paradigm. And so Networks really do act as a very useful and strong bridge, or at least they can, uh, between the sciences and the humanities, uh, which is one of the provocations that we make in this book.
2: Great. Thank you. And um, Ruth, some final comments on that?
3: I think I was going to say something quite similar about, you know, this idea that you have to throw information away. You're not throwing it away permanently. You're making a decision in that moment when to throw something away to get to a conclusion to get to an idea and you can move back and forth along that um, landscape of abstraction adding more more information or moving into more abstract realms depending on what your question is so it's not it's not a kind of you're making one decision you're throwing things away you're kind of able to move effortlessly (laughs) between these spaces and i think network analysis gives you the ability to move between those scales of analysis in a really nice way
2: yeah, I mean, I I think in um, my own research and the research that yeah that we're doing and li- living with machines, this is one of the real promises, and it's really exciting. And we're not doing that explicitly in network analysis, but I think it's something that we've learned from uh, an awareness of of that of that kind of environment in which you can move across across scales. Um, Sebastian.
1: Yes, just uh, I had had another thought related that to that, which we also touched on in I think chapter three, which is um, that network analysis can also be applied where you might not suspect it, which is well, not not in the context of say correspondence networks or social networks, but in networks of association between entities. So between, for instance, um, people and places, or objects and um, people, or um, texts and miscellanies, or um, so, so' any kind of uh, set if you have two or more entities and they are connected by associations you can construct a network and that allows you to apply network analysis in contexts where it maybe wasn't um wasn't sort of obvious and and uh, that in turn is is another form of abstraction so it's another way of um taking relationships between entities and turning them into something that you can um analyze with an algorithm and then and then And then we'll examine again through the the lens of your humanities discipline.
2: Well, and I think we've already said a lot now. Uh, We've borrowed a lot from chapter three, but Ruth, is there anything else that you'd like to say to kind of talk about um, where the book goes after the, the kind of historical setup of networks that Scott described?
3: Okay, so chapter three is kind of an overview of all of the things that you can do with a network approach to culture. It's really a whistle stop tour showing how. The framework can be used to say, look at the interactions of characters in Shakespeare's plays to think about the dissemination of memes on Facebook or even the trade network implicated in the ancient Roman brick industry. So it can cover very diverse circumstances. But what I'm really proud of in this chapter is how it grapples with the idea of the problems of thinking about quantitative approaches as giving us objective tools to look at culture. Um, Instead, we sort of push on the idea that the underlying data is actually subject to all kinds of shaping forces, that the creation of data sets require decisions and interpretations that introduce subjectivity into the process. It talks about the duty of care around data cleaning and our need to heed what is absent and where biases have affected the shape of our data.
2: Thank you. Yes, and and I th- I really like the way that you guys um, draw on um, Daniel Rosenberg's uh, formulation uh, that uh, quote facts are ontological, evidence is epistemological, and data is rhetorical, and you use that as a kind of entree into talking about absence and bias in data, and the ways that you know he, uh, scholars in different disciplines can can um, as you say really uh, attend to these problems and uh, not simply as as. As problems, but also as opportunities for understanding, for understanding the um, the information that they have at their disposal. Um, and I I really wanted to kind of pose as a question um, to 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 any of you the uh, proposition that you make in the in the, this chapter, which is you know that incompleteness doesn't have to be a disaster, um, and so and that this is something. Um, that that incompleteness is something that we share across the disciplines. Um, And so what are ways that we can have interdisciplinary approaches uh, to, to dealing with uh, incompleteness?
1: Yeah. um, Maybe I can say something. So I think um, uh, actually I just wrote a paper with, on incompleteness with um, someone on our networking archives um, project, which is another project that Ruth and I are involved in um, with the Ryan. And, um, So, uh, actually, in the the humanities, uh, there's often, um, I think, a big concern about incompleteness um, and and the fact that you can't draw uh, conclusions necessarily from incomplete uh, data using quantitative approaches. And I think what's maybe underestimated is that in the sciences, uh, you're largely dealing with incomplete data all the time, and that also network analysis in particular um, I mean, almost every real-world network data set that I've ever come across is is incomplete in the sense that it doesn't reflect, you know, the true network of social interactions. And even say within a mobile phone network, you'll still only capture, um, you know, a, a, a fraction of the actual mobile phone connections in that in that community because you will only have the data from one operator, etc. So, so incompleteness is is pervasive and. And you just have to be careful um, when you draw conclusions from your quantitative results that you have that they don't you know that they aren't crucially affected by that incompleteness. But there will be many research questions that you can still answer at least in some to some degree um, in, in light of that incompleteness because it simply won't affect those questions. Um, so, so I think that's a, the, 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 so incompleteness is inevitable and it's it's part of I think any. Um, uh, almost part of data science, I think, um, and, and related approaches. And you just have to be conscious uh, uh, of its presence and, and try to mitigate uh, its effect on your on, your, on your research questions. Uh, what we also did in that um, research paper I mentioned is to to look at, um, you know, we actually simulated, um, we removed portions of, of network data and looked at uh, how the network metrics change. And the, the, the good news, in a sense, is that... Um, you can actually, um, uh, certain types of network analysis are remarkably unaffected by by removal of data, and that's because uh, a lot of networks are highly skewed in the in the way that um, node characteristics and ed characteristics are, are distributed. So, um, you know, the, the, the top players will still be the top players even if you remove 50% or more of the data um, because of the skewedness. And so um, certain, you know, certain quantitative outcomes are remarkably unaffected, but again, some are affected and you just have to be um, aware of that or or you have to perform tests that that bring that to the fore. Um,
0: I I think Sebastian is more um, influenced by his domestic partnership than maybe he realizes in this response to incompleteness. (laughs) I would have to say that, that there's a this awareness of um, incompleteness, you know, uncertainty in data, and just uh, starting with uncertainty within the humanities as a given. Um, And so ways of uh, figuring out how to address that uncertainty um, are very much about, you know, repositioning, right? Or, you know, kind of looking at things from multiple different facets. Um, And I, I think there's actually more more influence already um, in, in the sciences than are, um, you know, fully accounted for. But w- you mentioned you mentioned Rosenberg and this way of um, helping us to to think about data um, by looking at at the history of of data uh, and how it helps us to see. Um, what are the sort of, you know, disciplinary assumptions around what we mean when we talk about data? And so we, we put that next to um, Drucker, where we, we bring up this point that she's made that, that we really should be talking about CAPTA, um, not data, because, you know, data, data is what is um, given. CAPTA is something that we take. So there's an inherent choice around that and putting the emphasis on um, the choices that we're making when we get to the point of, you know, let's say, as 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 Sebastian, you know, mentioned, sort of generalizing, yes, there's still conclusions we can draw, but let's point our attention back to the fact that those were editorial decisions made um, uh, from the beginning in terms of, you know, how, what what are the bounds um, of that data set, and um, and then from that point of what are the bounds of the data set, then then what do we choose to look at within it? Uh, so, I think there's more t- there's there's more to be discovered uh, through through our own collaboration. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see um, where this goes.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's right and and the, yeah, there's a lot of wonderful writing in the chapter that that digs into Joanna Drucker's work on thinking about capta and and the these other formulations of you know the history of data uh, of what we now call data um, and and the possibilities that we have for thinking about, you know what what cleaning does, what data curation um, really uh, does to a data set, uh, and the interpretive choices that are built into, into that um, very important work. Okay, great. Um, great. Right. So, Nicole, do you want to take us on to um, a summary of Chapter 4, Visual Networks?
0: Absolutely. So, I think the, fa- the very fact that we have a chapter titled Visual Networks <laughs> is because very often, particularly people who are not um, you know, doing network science, often first think of networks as visual because it's we see them. It's this imaginary that we have around you know what what is a network. It's 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 a very much a visual concept. Um, but in fact, I think that making networks visual—the way that we 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 opened this book with um, Lombardi and Barbasi—who also used visualization significantly um, in, um, in in his own research. Um, visual visualizing networks has sort of become, uh, I guess, one you know could say sort of a, a, a fulcrum for this um, uh, navigating and and communicating across disciplines. At least I, I hope that that's um, the case. We start in. We really sort of start by talking about, um, uh, Jacques Bertin and the semiology of graphics and this, um, this sort of notion of formalizing, um, a language. And, 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 you know, in that text, he's covering, you know, lots of visual forms and networks just being one of them. Um, but it's, it's quite interesting to take into account, um, what his, his thinking was and his assumptions and um and even sort of excitement about where computation the formalization of computation would then be able to take um take visualization um and, and, and visualization of networks in particular and again we can put that you know contrast that with um with drucker um uh, putting our trying to bring our emphasis back, our, our, our thinking back to, to a, a focus on um, uh, what is encoded in visualization, the assumptions that come with visualization, pr- particularly um, visualizations that are computationally produced that have this kind of, uh, you know, this, the, the, the visual rhetoric sort of suggests some kind of precision, right, that isn't necessarily there. Um, and, you know, Drucker particularly says, as we as we capture in this chapter, that, um, you know, what you're seeing in a visualization is not what is, right? but it is an argument. Uh, so you know, bringing us back by that I, to that, I, I think also in the course of our putting this book together and where we've come since the beginning of, of, of our work together, the, um, all the authors, in our own lives, data has become so much more personal. So our relationship to it is different. It's affecting all of us um, from day to day. We mentioned that in this chapter and this carries through toward the end of the book in terms of just you know maps and navigating spaces and the ways in which you know those are networks, those are networks that we've come um, to 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 take for granted. Um, but I think that part of this chapter what we we don't we don't discuss this explicitly, but there's a carry through, um, from, uh, from the work, um, that, that you mentioned earlier, Katie, of Lorraine Daston. In this case, particularly, I'm thinking of, um, Daston and Peter Gallison's book, Objectivity, you know, they, they end that, um, with, uh, you know looking at representation going from so from representation to presentation in the sciences and and the science is sort of grappling with this space of um the arts the visual presentation of information and the relation of that to a more objectively um, rooted in you know, scientific process uh, and and so that's wh- sort of what I mean i guess by thinking of visualization as this sort of fulcrum and we have we provide in this chapter ways of um, helping to uh, bring, I think, you know, Lombardi and Barbasi, for example, together. Um, Isabel Morales, for example, says, you know, we should be thinking about how we use visualization as a as a as a continuum between something that's purely descriptive and then something that's argumentative. Right. So it, it gives room and space for us to to position through a process, you know, through through a, um, uh, a empirical process of really un- getting to understand where are we just simply describing what we see or what we've captured? And then where where are we taking our interpretation of that and recognizing that it's not either or, um, but that it is, in fact, a a, a continuum. And it's interesting because you mentioned Rosenberg, you know, before, and of course we end um, the visualization chapter with another um, quote from him where, you know, he talks about visualization as something that maybe is meant to, to complicate rather than simplify, um, that we don't have to assume um, that this is only about um, getting us to something that is, uh, um, uh, you know, diagrammatic, easier to understand. Um, but we can actually very intentionally um, complicate that in order to well I would say deal with some of the uncertainties the incompleteness and so forth the data that, that Sebastian was mentioning before
2: yeah I think ex- exactly that's a really nice connection back to the discussion about abstraction um, and and how it is not is not purely about simplification. Uh, and, and I wonder just briefly if you wanted to say something. So, you know, you you, you really um, go into great depth in the chapter describing two tools for network analysis, Gephi and Palladio. And um, obviously, Palladio is near and dear to to your heart. Um, and just thinking about how Palladio operates in the space that you described, right, along this continuum between description and argument, in some of the ways that either it was designed intentionally to uh, enable that or that you've seen people using it uh, since um, it's been released?
0: Mm. Yeah, So you're referring to the fact, to the fact that we um, developed Palladio in Humanities Plus Design Lab, which was really, it, it was a sort of distillation of a number of different tools that were made uh, over the course of um, working with with data visualization and interaction and, and data analysis for mapping Republic of Letters. Um, I think, we did. We also had a very close relationship <laughs> with um, it, we, with the the the, um, the research behind the research project and Donna who you know, behind um, the development of GePhi, and then with the developers um, who who actually uh, built built GePhi. And um, I think it's quite interesting to see to look at the ways that those two tools developed, right, and how. Um, to go back, you know, sort of to, to Drucker's point, the way in which um, intention is really encoded into the software itself, and that's why um, it's so important to use these tools critically and understand where they came from, right? Um, Gephi is, the, the project underlying that is much more um, social science project. The, um, it's, there's a, there is a sort of assumption that the data sets um, that you're using are, are, are fairly well- um, fairly well bounded, or at least, um, if not if not well bounded, the assumptions right about get data as being a given. Given this, this is the kind of analysis we can do. And so, one of the things that Gephi does so beautifully is um, allows you to to sort of dynamically see how applying models gives you a result and can help you, um, uh, you know, help you with analysis, looking at different approaches. Um, to to applying existing models, right, and that is so much more uh, a social scientific approach than um, what Palladio is intended to do. Palladio is really intended as um, a tool to facilitate modeling. Um, often, within the humanities, there's a kind of resistance to to the whole notion of modeling. It sounds like you're you know imposing some external idea um, and and in, in, you know, imposing an external framing. Um, but instead, we wanted to suggest that um, models are, you know, they, they're, they're meant to be discursive, they're meant to be broken, but but they're extremely helpful. Um, and if for no other reason to, as, as I had mentioned before, externalize these ideas to, to make clear um, in in data, for example, you know where there are gaps, where there are absences, um, things that are just too easily sort of um, glossed over in in narrative, you know, which is which is how you know, most of um, of humanities research is, is presented. Um, and and this, you know, it certainly created um, a, a lot. there's a significant backlash. I, I think um, the uh, students involved in um, doing this work, using, for example, Palladio and trying to incorporate it into their um, research presentations, um, experienced significant backlash in early days. Um, so it's interesting, it's interesting to, again, to, to think about the, as I said, the, the way in which we encode um, methods into tools, uh, encodes our ways of thinking. It's something that's become clear um, through through this work on networks, um, precisely because they're so easily adaptable to different contexts, you know. Uh, through the Humanities Bus Design Lab, we we did so we started with this idea of wanting to externalize thought. Right, it was an, out of necessity because we needed to be able to collaborate with um, with with data science experts. You know, just with. Um, computer scientists generally, uh, and it was a way of communicating across these disciplines. Oh, and with designers, of course. Um, but we also wanted to, you know, recognize the responsibility that we had to encode humanistic methods into data-driven research tools rather than just sort of assuming that somehow um, whatever exists out there is something that we should just adopt and begin to use, that we needed to take responsibility for actually, you know, bending or building tools um, to serve our own needs. Thank you and um I think we have
2: um talked a lot about what is in a chapter Five quantifying culture, but i I still want to invite Sebastian to maybe um say um say a few words about that chapter.
1: Yes, so I think what we touched on before was more um about the um the first part of chapter five, which is about abstraction of data network data, and what what uh, what why one needs to Choose a particular abstraction for a particular purpose, and what the trade off is, which is a um, you know, greater level of abstraction, uh, sort of uh, discards more information temporarily, but leads to a, a larger number of available analysis methods. Um, um, but what the, what the chapter five also talks about is, is the, you know, that, the, the varying degree of, um, the varying levels of analysis and the varying complexity. And so you can uh, start with simple network measures like degree, which is the number of connections, or or slightly more complex measures such as centralities where you, you try and gauge the the sort of significance of a node in an infrastructural sense by looking at how many shortest paths flow through it. Or, um, uh, but, but then you can also actually go um, not just one step further in, in terms of the sort of complexities I mentioned before, which are sort of directed and weighted and temporal networks, but you can also um, sort of start customizing analysis in a way that is sort of more difficult to do with with off-the-shelf tools like um, like for instance, Scaffy, which um, which only have standard algorithms. Um, if you so you can start to um, frame a historical research question in a in a quantitative sense, you can. Um, You know, you can design a very custom-made analysis that looks for a very specific network pattern um, involving specific types of of individuals. Um, And you can then search for that pattern across the whole whole data set. And you can cross-reference also um, different types of data. So you can look at uh, networks around um, words, for instance. You You can look at all the network links um, that uh, well, if you've got the metadata of on, on contents, you could look at all the network links that involve the mention of a certain place or, or name, um, and so on. So, what I'm trying to say is that the level, you know, quantitative analysis can become sort of arbitrarily complex, and and that's also something we wanted to talk about in in the in the in this chapter is is that you can you can sort of reframe. It's not sort of just t- two different um, Approaches. It's not. It's not just about um, quantitative methods and 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 humanities methods, and it's it's in, in some sense there's a there's a as Scott already said, networks are kind of a bridge, and, and one of the ways uh, this bridge can be realized is by you know framing complex historical research questions in in terms of complex custom designed algorithms that you run on these networks um, and on the associated metadata. So I think that's um. That's a bit bit what we wanted
2: to. Yeah, thank you. And I I think another really important uh, contribution of this chapter is to talk about, you know, the practicalities of of how how we do that, right? How we um, invite, uh, you know, students and early career scholars and really, really anyone at any stage of their career to to. To work in this kind of collaborative research, where um, you know not everyone has to become an expert in in statistics and in, and in network um, analysis uh, tools, especially those that are not um, you know out of uh, off the shelf, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I wonder if you have any kind of further thoughts about about sort of what what the first steps are really for someone who who wants to embark on this um, this pathway of of uh, yeah taking up taking up the sort of call to action that this mm-hmm. this book is
1: um yes I think there's a variety of um, um, ways I mean uh, the, you, you could either um, uh, I think starting to collaborate is, is one one way forward but it involves um, in fi- finding the right community but but there's a growing community out there um, and then the the other way in is I think there's an increasing number of 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 Sort of tutorials and resources and workshops and and um, summer schools and 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 programs that that start to teach methods um, quantitative methods to people who have no prior experience and and actually we um, uh, Ruth and I have been a bit of involved in, in those kinds of programs um, and uh, and there's um, and also I know for instance at Cambridge there's uh, the, the Cambridge Digital Humanities puts on regular teaching workshops for for people in the humanities to, to learn programming and quantitative methods and I think that's really the best um, the best ways to sort of get stuck in um, yourself because then you also have the power to, to shape the analysis um, to really make sure that the tools you're using are are um, that, you, that, that you understand them and and then um, are also able to interpret the results because occasionally with collaboration, the collaboration the, the problem can be that If the if the collaboration is not very close, then the the sort of quantitative results end up being quite detached from the the um, sort of underlying historical or or literary research questions. So um, I think the best way really is to um, seek out sort of these resources and um, uh, tutorials, workshops, as I mentioned.
2: and I, I think I'll say myself. I started learning about network network analysis by reading Scott's blog posts, yes. Oh, yes. so those are also highly recommended. <laughs> um, thank you so much, everyone. I think in in lieu of asking anyone to describe the last chapter, um, networking the divided kingdom, um, in a way, I wanted to um, to, to kind of uh, ask you to to respond to the to the prompt of that chapter, uh, where you where you talk about how. Um, uh, quote, a well-designed network approach to cultural data reorients us in such a way that the binaries between the sciences and, and the humanities and arts are eradicated. So I just wanted to give each of you um, an opportunity to describe how, how you are doing that um, now that the book is done.
3: Seb and I have been working on a, on a project that's a, that's a book about how we've applied the study of network analysis to um, the history of Tudor communication. And so I I think that's an example of where we're writing for a literary historical audience. Um, And what it tries to do is sort of move between using um, uh, very sort of quantitative, large scale approaches to find general patterns, but then really delves down into very specific case studies to show how it works on the ground. And follows like little threads of individual people whose stories have been uncovered through that. Um, And for me, that's a kind of manifestation of how network analysis can be used and the story told in a way that's compelling for our home discipline. But at the same time, we've had to develop new methods to do that kind of work. Um, And we're developing, for example, we're doing work on temporal network analysis at the moment that we're hoping to air in a science venue. So... It, it can speak in two directions. Um, uh, maybe I'll hand over to Seb there to say a little bit more.
1: Yes, I think um, I think both sides can 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 sort of learn from each other, but also also I think it's important that um, the science and humanities are, are sort of brought closer together. And I think um, I think we're we sort of talking that in that last chapter a bit about the sort of aerial um, the, the analogy of the aerial. Photograph in archaeology, where you take a photograph of a field and then see some outlines, and you go down and dig, dig around, and um, and I think you could even you know think about satellite imagery versus aerial imagery and so on. So there's a sort of sliding scale of um, of 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 um, abstract and and concrete analysis that can be done, and I think you know the the, uh, and, the and I think if one you know, engages in this kind of collaboration, it becomes apparent that really um, uh, the, 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 the disciplinary boundaries really are are very bur- are very blurry, and that also that um, as Ruth was also hinting at, this, the sciences can learn an awful lot from um, you know, the humanities, and the way that, for instance, abstraction is is um, abstraction you know, needs a lot of thought, um, and the um, also the the problems and biases in algorithms that is a, of course a huge topic at the moment um, that is also something which uh, is I think much more obvious if you're doing quantitative analysis on humanities data it is as much the flaws in algorithms um, and as we've also touched on incompleteness I mean those those issues become much more apparent um, to scientists as well if they engage in, in the analysis of, of humanities data so so um, I think everyone sort of benefits from this uh, cross-communication and um, uh, also in terms of um, a, a deeper understanding of of, of of their own practice, I think.
0: That's great. Nicole, do you want to? Sure. If, if I could just pick up on, on what um, Sub was saying. I certainly found, well, this last chapter and uh, using this notion of the local versus the aerial has been extremely helpful for me too. And I think about now being much more in the library. Um, I, my, I've, I've moved a bit uh, from from being in the research lab to to being within the library and can appreciate much more the degree to which you know the library has served the humanities as this you know, kind of abstracting from um, sources, you know, doing classification, um, uh, generalizing um, in in many ways, right, in order to make lots and lots of information more understandable. And um, I think that particular relationship, uh, as it becomes more fully appreciated in the light of humanities research being engaged much more in, uh, in quantitative approaches um, is going to be very instructive for us um, going forward, particularly as we think about, um, well, the kind of work that um, that Ruth is, is very involved in now, um, and you, and Katie, with you know, incorporating machine learning practices, um, thinking about predictive models and that kind of generalization. How does that relate to the sort of classification that humanities practices have always uh, depended upon um, within libraries and not only the classification side of that, but also this other side about bounding data, thinking about curation, uh, collection curation and and what that means and how much that has actually informed um, the, the way that we approach our research questions um, within the domain. So to answer your question about where it takes us, that's what I'm thinking about very much right now. And um, this project and this collaboration um, has been extremely helpful to me in that regard.
4: I appreciate uh, Nicole for um, (laughs) uh, giving the answer that I was uh, going to give as well so I can uh, (laughs) speak less. My recent uh, job, uh, is also squarely within the libraries more so than any of my previous ones have been. And um, in the, quote, Center for Digital Scholarship, uh, rather than the Center for Digital Humanities, uh, the remit is very broad uh, and, and not just limited to the humanities, which has been, I think, quite freeing. Um, some of the, the really most interesting projects we've seen over the last year in the pandemic have, I think, been really fruitful collaborations between uh, technologists and people who are are squarely um, Mm. grounded in the humanities. For example, uh, one thing that a lot of people have seen uh, from the Atlantic was the COVID tracking project. And that was definitely a collaboration of journalists, scientists and humanists really working closely together. Uh, and I've been very excited to see here at Notre Dame, there's, there's a lot of those sorts of cross-cutting collaborations. Uh, and really, uh, this, the work that, uh, that the four of us did on this book, um, as well as all of the work that I think we all do on uh, networks, which have been necessarily collaborative across domains, have been uh, really good preparation uh, at least for me for for my move here, and uh, hopefully for all of us to to start worrying less about the disciplines that we find ourselves in.
2: I think that's uh, an excellent point on which to um, wrap up this conversation. and I want to thank all, all of you, Scott, Nicole, Sebastian, and Ruth for um, for joining me on this interview.. Uh, the network turn is a really significant contribution, um, I think, you know, as, as uh, Scott was just alluding to, not just to kind of people who think of, about their research in very disciplinary terms, but indeed to kind of beginning to think more about uh, the, the interactions uh, between those disciplines and the spaces between that have, have sometimes been forgotten. Uh, and uh, there's so much opportunity there. Going forward, and so hopefully we'll see lots of exciting new research there. Um, so thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed speaking to you, um, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you, Katie. Thank,
4: thank you. you so much. It was a pleasure Thanks for having us.